This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. These are Our Voices, a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. As appellate director and legislative liaison for the Office of Respondent Parents Council, the agency within Colorado's judicial branch that provides legal advocates for indigent parents in child welfare proceedings, Ruchi Kapoor helped establish and oversee Colorado's first appellate program for respondent parents in child welfare cases. A Colorado native, Ruchi has been an extremely active member of the legal community, holding leadership positions in both the Denver and Colorado Bar Associations, as well as the South Asian Bar Association of Colorado and the Colorado Women's Bar Association. She is also a graduate of the prestigious Colorado Bar Association Leadership Training Program, COBALT. Ruchi sat down with our own Mallory Revel and Linda Moss to talk about her path to the legal profession, her experiences with ORPC, and the broader legal community, as well as the launch of her new firm, Kapoor Law and Policy. Enjoy this conversation with Ruchi Kapoor. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast, Our Voices. My name is Linda Moss of Coombe, Curry, Rich, and Jarvis. I'm here with Mallory Revel of Foster Graham, Milstein, and Kalisher. And today we are speaking with Ruchi Kapoor, who's with the Office of Respondent Parent Council. Well, thanks for having me. This is very exciting. Yeah, we're extremely excited to talk to you. Um, So let's just jump right into it. We are going to talk to you today about who you are and who you were and who you will be. It's uh, no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) It's like that last part, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no one does. We'll come back to that. (laughs) So let's start with who you were. Where did you grow up? So I was born in Denver. Um, My parents immigrated to the United States from India in 1980. Okay. So I was born at St. Joe's, which is like just up the street. Oh, yeah. Um, But I grew up – my parents were kind of pioneers. And so like we were one of like the first families who bought a house in Highlands Ranch. And so I remember when I was growing up in Highlands Ranch – like, the, the road to our house was a dirt road. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, that's how long my parents have lived in Isles Ranch. Wow. Was, oh, and they still live there? Yeah, they still live there. They still own that house. Um, is the road paved? The road has been paved. <laughs> it has um, – it's covered with Starbucks and Whole Foods. Don't worry. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> good, 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 good. Um, what was it like growing up in Highlands Ranch? You know, it was um, – it was – I didn't realize how much character I developed in Highlands Ranch until I left. Like, I always thought of it as the most boring place in the universe, <laughs> which, you know, I think that's probably a good sign when you're thinking that it's like – you know, like, I remember struggling when I was writing that college essay, and everyone was giving <laughs> mm-hmm. you the advice of, like, write about a hardship that you've had. And I'm like, I haven't had any hardship. <laughs> what hardship? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know what to write about. Um but I think, you know, growing up in Highlands Ranch, it also kind of brought out the fighter in me in a sense that, like, like the HOA, and I'm sorry to all of my friends that are HOA attorneys that represent <laughs> HOAs, um, but they were my sworn enemy, like, growing up. Mm-hmm. So I just, you know, like, I was constantly railing against them. I just had, like, this kind of, 
you know, the, the Highlands Ranch HOA is, like, out to get my parents. And so it was very much like I grew up just, like, ah, like, let's go fight all of these HOA letters that my parents are getting about, like, you have to vet your shade of beige when you're paint when you're painting your house right like oh, all of that boy. stuff that's like the level that the, the highlands ranch oh, hoa is at gosh. wow like high level suburban <laughs> problems yeah i will write an essay about this <laughs> right like this wasn't good college essay fodder but it was um you know like my parents were always just like yeah whatever like she's just my mom always called me hard-headed like i think was her description of me so, yeah, that was, you know, growing up in Highlands Ranch, we were also some of, like, the only brown, like, brown people around um, until I was in high school. So I think my sister had a very different experience than I did, and she was only four years older than me. Mm-hmm. I had, like, this crew of, um, like, the five brown girls in my high school class, mm-hmm. and... um my mom called us the troublemakers um, <laughs> because we just kind of, you know, like we were always at school, like rabble rousing. So it was always just like the five of us. Um, like being, I don't know, like faux woke, I guess. Like that was before wokeness was a thing. And so we weren't really woke. We were just, I don't know. Was there even a name for wokeness then? No, I think we were just um, bullish. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I love these words you use, rabble rousing and bullish. You do have a fantastic vocabulary. It's one of your strengths. For what it's worth, I'm sure that your college admissions officers were extremely impressed that you were talking about your HOA. I can't think of any child who's like, oh, this HOA. HOA. In such a bullish way. Yeah, that's right. That's amazing. Wow. Okay. Um, So where did you go to college? Um, So I ended up actually going to undergrad. I went to Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, Um, which I know, like, it's – everyone's just like, why did you go to Omaha? It's also like a Catholic school. So when I was in high school, um, Creighton was still one of the few places that had kind of like the direct med school like tie so if you got high enough grades um coming out of high school and like had enough like a certain number of ap science credits um they they basically like the promise that they made you was that you come to creighton and you do the the pre-med program and if you get a high enough mcat score then you're pretty much guaranteed admission Mm -hmm. into med school and for my parents that felt like that was, like, the golden ticket. They were, yep. like, yes. Like, you need to go there. And then, like, what sealed the deal is like, I got, like, a scholarship. And so they were, like, that's where you need to go to undergrad. And I was just, like, yeah, but it's Omaha. <laughs> and they were, like, no. <laughs> like, you just we don't to, care. Like, you have the golden ticket. <laughs> I'm totally – I was totally going to be, like, the dream Indian child, right? Like, it's going to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And my parents were, like, you have to go be a doctor. And so that didn't work out so well as you guys <laughs> Oh, disappointing a lawyer. <laughs> I know. I just had to go like a totally different direction. Um, but yeah, like that in my junior year of college, I took the LSAT and the MCAT. And I, oh, wow. and like the LSAT, I kind of studied for as like a backup. And so it was very much like a side gig. And I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. And yeah. So like, I, cause I was focusing more on like the MCAT, but the MCAT is a nightmare. Don't take it. Just. <laughs> Just so you guys know. Yeah, right? I was planning on doing that later today. Oh, yeah, right? 
<laughs> yeah, no, God never. So ever. that yeah, so that was how I ended up at Creighton, but I loved it. I thought, um, and this is just like my little plug for like Jesuit Catholic education. Everyone was just like, Why are you in a Catholic school? Like you're this Indian kid, like what are you doing? And I think that it was probably the best education that I could have gotten at that point. Like it was so formative, even though we had to take classes with titles like Jesus Christ yesterday and today, which was a interesting class actually because you learned about jesus christ yesterday and today um but what about tomorrow though <laughs> that was like level two <laughs> sophomore year oh my gosh <laughs> no it was taught by this nun and like the jesuits are very um like the way that they approach education is just like the socratic method and so really actually it was like the best preparation for law school yeah. because you're constantly on the spot, but it was like it was Sister Mary Williams. I remember her name, and then I had Father What a Waste, but <laughs> we're we're gonna need to unpack that. <laughs> what a waste of a face oh. on the priesthood. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we all loved Father What a Waste. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, like maybe that's the title of my memoir. <laughs> like, Tales from Catholic School. Oh my God. Um, but like it was, it was fantastic. Like I learned a lot about like questioning and you know how to approach philosophical life questions that I think you don't get in probably most other yeah. like public educational spheres. So it was pretty cool. Like when I looked back on it yeah. at the time, I was just like, oh God. So were you saying the MCAT just didn't go well or did you just get through it and think I'm never, ever looking at any of this stuff ever again? So I think what ended up happening was, um, A, the idea of being a doctor really stressed me out. And I think part of that was that um, I kind of started investigating like what my life would look like as a doctor, right? Sure. Like if I really followed through on this, um, what was I going to be doing? And I realized that, like, in my head, I carried this very old school picture of, you know, like, a doctor with, like, their white coat and, like, the black medical bag and, like, traveling to people's houses and whatever, right? Um, that's not what modern medicine is. That's not what <laughs> practicing medicine <laughs> looks like at all. And I realized that, like, you know, the practice of medicine to me and, like, the slog that they put you through um, before you actually become a doctor, I, it just seemed like it wasn't the right – it wasn't a good fit personality-wise, right? Like, because I enjoy questioning things. I enjoy pushing at boundaries. Like, and you'll see – like, this has definitely played out. Like, I'm an appellate attorney, right? Like, so I enjoy kind of pulling at threads and looking deeper into questions. And that's – you don't get that luxury, I think, as a doctor or any kind of medical professional. And so I knew as soon as I took the MCAT that, like, because everyone there was just, like, all about the rote path. And, you know, like, that works for certain personality types, and it just wasn't for me. Yeah. So I wouldn't have made a very good doctor. I would have showed up and, like, been like, like I would have been, like, Patch Adams, I think. <laughs> <laughs> like, if there was, like, any, anybody that would have been close with Patch Adams. <laughs> All right. Well, that's excellent that you figured that out before going to med school. <laughs> yeah, I think I've I've heard a lot. I've had a lot of friends that have told me um, that that was a thing that they had to confront when after they got to med school, and I was like, wow, I'm glad I didn't waste the tuition. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you took the solid backup yeah. and went to law school. Yeah. Tell us about your law school experience. Um, Law school was really hard for me. <laughs> I don't know if anyone looks back on law school fondly. Like, I would like to find David those people. David Beller. <laughs> really? Yeah. The one person. <laughs> we, we Actually, that's not true. My fiance loved law school. We talk a lot about, you know, law school experiences because I think it's encouraging for law students to hear, mm-hmm. you know, there are really successful lawyers and judges and people that do all these wonderful things that just either weren't good at law school, yeah. hated it, or a combination. And so we kind of talk about that a little bit. So it sounds like you also struggled a bit in law school. Yeah, that was um, – I'm definitely in that camp of people who didn't – like it was so hard for me because I think the thing about law school is that it's totally just like mashing your brain so that it thinks and moves. Like it's like – it feels like it's rewiring your brain in mm-hmm. a way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I that's a really hard process to describe to people that have never been through it. But – that's totally what it felt like. It it feels awful when you're going through it. And I remember that I have never – I've never been more anxious than I was in law school. Yeah. Um, I was a very anxious law student. And I think at the time, like, we weren't having all these really amazing conversations that we're having now in the bar about, like, mental wellness mm-hmm. and making sure that you take care of yourself and how do you do that. Um and so it was just, like, something that wasn't on my radar. It was always just, like, focused on getting good grades. And then when you're not getting good grades, it's, like, soul-crushing. So it feels like you're in the depths of despair all the time. So I think law school was – it was really hard for me. So the fact that I graduated was – it felt like a huge victory. Like <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but the thing that I loved about law school – I actually – like, so I went to see you. Um, cause we didn't talk about that yet. So I went to see you, I graduated in 2010 and, um, that meant that I graduated straight into the bottom of the recession. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of where I figured out that, um, I'm pretty scrappy too. So I think like I ended up coming out of law school. I didn't have a job and I didn't have a plan. <laughs> Yeah, I graduated in 2011 and bartended for the first six months, so I'm with you there. I worked at J. Crew, but it is how yeah. I acquired my suit wardrobe. And so- oh, nice. <laughs> that makes more sense than bartending. Oh, law students, listen to this. Strategy. Yeah. Go work yes. at J. Crew. Go, J. Crew, like the discount, I don't know if they still do it, but like they gave you like 60% off all wow. of their really nice wool suits. Nice. So, And I still have a lot of them. And so... There you go. Decade later, there's my like law school law student tip. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's what I did. So I worked at J Crew, and then I like volunteered at Colorado Legal Services. Mm-hmm. But I also didn't know what I wanted to do. I think most law students now are probably in a better boat than I was in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, that like I didn't actually like I thought that I wanted to be a patent attorney for a while, right? Because oh. like what else am I supposed to do with all these like science classes mm-hmm. that I took in undergrad? Um, and so I was really deep into like the tech law journal and like mm-hmm. Silicon Flatirons and like the whole Phil Weiser crowd. Like I yeah. I was really deep in into that. And then I realized that like that also was it's it's such a rigid career path that um, it wasn't you know again it, it it felt like not a very good personality match and I, I'm glad that I like started figuring out how to make those personality matches like 
at very good moments in my career. I think that's like saved me more than anything else. But coming out of law school, it meant that I didn't have a plan. So I, I volunteered for Colorado Legal Services in the consumer unit doing mortgage. Um, we were doing like HAMP. Like, I don't know if you guys remember HAMP, but um, it was basically we were defending people who were being foreclosed on. Um, and then I was moonlighting as like a paralegal for a couple of other attorneys. And I was just like, yeah, this is this is great. I'm just doing like legal research. And it kind of and then I ended up landing a clerkship. Because I think at the time I was like, well, I think the best place for me to, to be right now is in a clerkship. So I ended up clerking for the Denver Juvenile Court. Um, and I had never heard of child welfare law. Like it was not on my radar at all in law school. And, um, the Denver Juvenile Court was a really eye-opening place because it's such a major, it's such a major thing that our government is doing. Like we have this whole system built around, you know, um, protecting children and removing children in order to protect them and how like the government is dealing with that. Um, and it's like governed by all these weird civil – like it's like the civil rules, but there's also juvenile rules. Like it's very complex area of the law. So like my appellate brain was very much like, yeah, I love this um, because there's so many things that are crashing into each other at the same time in child welfare law that, you know, nobody ever – well, not nobody, but like it, it's just – it's incredibly difficult to wrap your mind around how all of these things are working together. Um and so I, I I, kind of just found it. Like I just found – like once I cleared to the Denver Juvenile Court, like everything clicked for me, which was like I love this area of the law. Um, how do I come back to this? So yeah, and then that was that was true love. I loved I loved the, the Juvenile Court in all its dysfunctionality. I loved it. <laughs> so once you found that love, you said something along the lines of how do I come back to it? How did you come back to it? Yeah, I think um, I, after that, I ended up working for um, one of the attorneys that I was moonlighting for, actually, um, when I was, like, cobbling together, like, oh, my God, I need to have something to fill this hole on my resume. Mm -hmm. um, and so I ended up working for an appellate attorney because I also knew that I wanted to do appellate work. Um, I loved the idea of being able to write all the time. Which I know also is like, yeah, everyone makes that face. <laughs> I would much rather write than be in a courtroom. That would always be my pri Yep. Yep. Mallory's uh -huh. <laughs> wow. got this like uh -huh. stunned look. I'm the odd yeah. woman out here. Yeah. No, I I love being the nerd in the back. Like it's mm -hmm. being an appellate attorney is the best gig. So I'm telling everybody this because <laughs> we need more appellate attorneys. <laughs> but um, I think that, you know, like I knew that I wanted to do appellate work. Um, I loved researching and writing, and so um, I ended up going back and working for Anthony Noble at the Noble Law Firm, and it was just pure appellate work. So I was his associate, and we I had a criminal defense, so I had criminal defense appeals, um, juvenile appeals, which were really fun, mm. but also what ended up burning me out of private practice, and um, and then a little bit of parent representation. So I kind of. When I was with Anthony, he kind of gave me free license to go out and do the kind of appeals that I was interested in. So after the juvenile court, I was able to make the connection and be like, hey, maybe there's some room for an appellate attorney to come in 
and do like delinquency appeals and maybe there's some room for an appellate attorney to come in and start um, hammering on some of these issues in child welfare. So I started taking on a lot of respondent parent clients and I literally was just networking with respondent parent attorneys that I knew mm-hmm. um, from clerking and was just like, if you have any appeals, like <laughs> just send them to our office and I'm going to do my best. And um, so after that, um, because I was one of the few, I think, like there was only a handful of attorneys in the state that was handling um child welfare appeals. Mm -hmm. And when they created the Office of Respondent Parents Council, um, and this is a crazy story to me because looking back on it, I think that there was maybe some, like my job offer was very unconventional in terms of working for a state agency. So I was approached by the then executive director who had just been appointed um, by the state legislature to kind of start this brand new state agency. And she knew me through bar stuff, actually. So she was the the president of Sam Carey at the time. And um, I was president of the South Asian Bar Association at the time. So that was how we knew each other was like, um, and I think the diversity bars still do like the monthly breakfast of the presidents. So I knew her from that. And she said, you know, like I've been tapped to or I'm essentially been appointed to um, head up this new state agency. Um, I think there are very few people that are doing appellate work in the state, and I want, I'm want i looking to create kind of like a specific staff attorney who is doing respondent parent appeals or is looking at, like, is, is, she called it the appellate director at the time, and I was like, no one directs appeals, but okay. <laughs> um, and... So she was like, let's get a drink. And then we went to get drinks. And that was when she offered me the job. And it's that's such an unconventional way to be hired at a state <laughs> yeah. agency. Yeah. Yes, it is. Um, and looking back, I'm just like, that was weird. Um, <laughs> but that's how I got my current gig. And I love it. Like, it's it's really cool. I have gotten to basically start a brand new state agency from scratch. Like no one knew what my role was going to be. Every time I walk into the room, I feel like Darth Vader. Um, (laughs) I started playing the Darth Vader theme song for a while Um, (laughs) because I think like, you know, there were like, there was so much change that comes with appeals. And so I think everyone attached all of the change that was happening in child welfare to just the appellate piece because like, you know, the appeals were changing the law. Um, and so, like, every time I would enter a meeting, everyone was like, why is the appellate director here? <laughs> why? <laughs> I don't know. It's just a job. <laughs> um, so I think it's been a really fun road. And, I mean, like, I like you know, it wasn't for not. The first year that our agency existed, um, I think – Appeals like respondent, parent, and child welfare appeals increased by 42%. Wow. wow. So I got a call from, like, the Court of Appeals, and they were like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm not doing anything. I'm just providing counsel. I didn't do anything. You're like, I'm doing my job. (laughs) You're welcome. Access to justice. Come on. Like, that's the thing you say all the time. (laughs) So the court actually called you to be like, why are you litigating so much? (laughs) Well, they didn't call me and say it that way, but it was very much like, look at these numbers. And I was like, yes, 
<laughs> and they are correct. <laughs> like, I always feel like I'm like this chastised child, like sitting in a room, whatever anyone calls me and is like, let me show you the numbers of the appeals. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> we can have this conversation again. Right? You're like, am I supposed to care about this for something or, okay. <laughs> but you've been with the ORPC for a couple of years now, right? Yeah. So I've been there since 2016 when it started. Um, so in February of 2021, it'll be five years. So clearly going out to a drink is a perfectly valid way to get a lasting job. <laughs> you know, don't turn down drinks when people offer them yeah, to That is you. good life advice. Especially yes. in the legal profession. You certainly don't. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like we're moving away from drinking culture, yeah, I hope. But, um, you know, if somebody offers to buy you a coffee, also don't turn that down. Yeah. Also good advice. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier that your mom described you as hard-headed and, you know, you had kind of your little crew of friends and rabble-rousers, I believed you called yourselves. Yes. <laughs> and you tied that into being an appellate attorney earlier. Um, not being an appellate attorney. Mm -hmm. Can you flesh that out for us a little bit? Yeah. So I think, like, kind of the root of being an appellate attorney is approaching a record with curiosity right so it's it's like looking it's reading words on a page so you're, you've got transcripts you've got this whole record that's been made by the really amazing trial attorneys <laughs> that had up before you um and you have to look at it with fresh eyes that's your job but you have to approach it in a way that um when you're finding issues to raise on appeal that um they really are issues that haven't been noticed or pushed on yet. And I think that is something that we used to do when we were rabble-rousing in high yeah. school. <laughs> I mean, I think that really was something that we we took a lot of joy in was um, kind of pushing people on their boundaries and, and, making sh and making sure that, you know, what people's moral position was was really what their moral position was. And I think it, there's like a little bit of sadism that comes with that um it there really is like you have to want to look at you know like a legal concept and say okay like it seems like we're drawing the line here but in this case that's not where the line was so I'm gonna push on that a little bit and just see just see and um I think that like I'm trying to think of a, a way to illustrate this because I always end up talking in like giant metaphors and I'm like I should probably learn to distill this down. Um, so I think in high school we decided to um, take over this club called the Multicultural Alliance in high school, and um, we were just like we're all lots of cultures we're an alliance this is great. Um, and so then we, like, we would sit in the room, and it kind of became clear to us that it was just all the brown kids that were part of the Multicultural Alliance, and so it was, like, the brown kids club. So the way that it kind of shook out was that we were, like, we should all join something else. Um, and so if you look at, like, the clubs that I was a part of in high school, like, I think one of them was, like, the Future Business Leaders of America. 
because <laughs> we were like, one of the goals of the Multicultural Alliance <laughs> is to send a brown person ambassador to like every other club. Wow. <laughs> a brown person ambassador? <laughs> there, wasn't there like five of you? That's a lot of running around. Yeah, I was like part of the Rotary Club. And then I also oh, wow. joined like, um, it was like Future Christian something. And so they, they had like a prayer group at like 5 a.m. like Oof. once a month. And so I would like show up to that and be like, hey guys. Because <laughs> like, they were all just like, okay. Why are you here? <laughs> and I was like, I'm like, I made it. But it was just like, you know, I think part of it was um, I got to pick which ones had the coolest t shirts. And so I think like <laughs> the future business leaders of them, FBLA had the coolest t shirt. Um, I wore that t-shirt until like it fell apart at the seams. <laughs> it was such a cool t-shirt. And so I think it like that was part of my reasoning. But looking back on it, it was just like just by showing up sometimes, I think we learned quickly that that is enough to push people's boundaries because you're not like what is expected, right? So it's right. like sometimes showing up to a prayer circle at five o'clock in the morning, just to, just because you're curious is enough to kind of get people to be like, well, why are you curious about it? And let's talk to you about it in a way that engendered a lot of interesting conversations. Um, and I actually had this cohort of Mormon friends in high school that I used to hang out with a lot. And they were like, I called them mom approved because my mom loved them. My mom loved my Mormon friends. More than the rabble rousers? Yeah, because they didn't, like, they didn't come over and drink all the soda and, like, just leave crumbs <laughs> everywhere. Like, they were so polite and, like, um, my mom just loved them. <laughs> she loved their parents. Like, their parents would come over and she's like, they're so sweet. And I was like, yeah, but. She's like, how did you meet them? I'm like, 5 a.m. prayer circle <laughs> So it it was, you know, like, I think it taught me a lot, too, about my personality um, because, again, like, I, I think showing up and just being curious are, like, two of my biggest life mottos, right? Like, I just – sometimes you can get a lot done just by showing up and asking questions, um, and I think that can either push boundaries or that can – um, get you in a door that you didn't think was open to you. Did that lay the foundation for you to now be very involved in the legal community or centered around equity, diversity, and inclusivity? Yeah, this is, again, like one of those things where I just was, you know, I just asked questions. <laughs> so like with the CWBA, um, so I'm the co-chair of the CWBA's um, DEI committee this year and I was the co-chair last year as well when they kind of wanted to start it and get it off the ground um again you'll you'll notice this is another pattern I like starting projects I love starting projects um but finishing projects is so hard <laughs> um but when the CWBA like I've been part of the CWBA from when I was um a president for the South Asian Bar Association so with Sava I was the president I think it was probably like 2015 when I was president. And um, I th when that was going on, like that was – the CWBA was in the in the process of adding um, diversity liaisons to their board. And because Saba is so small, it just became another job for the president. And so um, amongst all the other meetings that I was attending, 
as Saba president, um, I also became the diversity liaison to the CWBA board. So I just attended the monthly meetings for the CWBA. But it was really great because I got to know the board really well. Um, And so it kind of fostered my own curiosity about the women's bar, which I would have never joined um, if it wasn't for that liaison position, right? Like I always would have stuck to, okay, I should join like the bar association and maybe like the criminal defense bar Mm -hmm. um, and probably a South Asian bar, I guess, um, because I'm South Asian. (laughs) And so, and also because I love Saba. But um, I think that that really opened kind of this pathway of like, again, curiosity. I was just like, wow, this is a really interesting organization. I kind of got more involved in it. And I constantly was just like, well, okay, so what is the point of these diversity liaisons? And I was always chatting with like the president. And I think finally it it got to the moment where Sarah Parody was elected president or she was coming, she was the incoming president. And she approached me and she was just like, look, we actually need to kind of create, I'm thinking about creating like an ad hoc DEI committee. Would you be interested in that? Um, and I, I was like, yeah, that sounds perfect. So what ended up happening is even though I was kind of, it was just like this very much, it was a relationship-based situation. And I think it was because I had just been showing up and asking questions. Um, and it kind of turned into this really great project. I think like the DEI committee now is super busy. Like we have four subcommittees Each subcommittee, like, there's one that's dedicated to leadership within the CWBA and looking at, like, the pipeline to leadership in the CWBA. One is looking at the track to leadership into the legal profession. So they're busy working on um, creating programming for elementary school. Like, they're they're doing, like, this mock trial for elementary schoolers with, like, it's like a SpongeBob script. It's so cute. Um, And then... There's like the one of the subcommittees is called bang for your buck, right? Because one of the biggest complaints that we heard was about um, transparency in terms of costs in the CWBA. So they're kind of looking at how do we create low fee programming within the CWBA and like talk, like do messaging around where your bar association dues, like where your membership dues are going, um, which I think is an important conversation. And then I think, and then there's another subcommittee that's doing visibility and accountability. So they're kind of looking at um, the inclusion piece and how do we make sure that we're building this into the bones of the CWBA as they exist moving forward. And that all started, all of that work started because I just showed up and was just like, Sarah, (laughs) I have some questions. (laughs) And I'm just, I just want to know, like... What is happening? Um, and she was like, these are great questions. <laughs> show up and ask questions. Just show up great and ask question. questions. I love you it. You answer them. <laughs> yeah, great way to get involved in the bar. Show up and ask questions. Now you all know. I mean, not to my committees because I'm never going to have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's when you turn around and you say, that's a great question. <laughs> Do you want to start a subcommittee? Yeah, start a subcommittee. <laughs> How have you kind of taking care of yourself, used your time, practice self-care? Did you watch Tiger King? Have you read books? How how have you handled your time at home? Well, so how, I, I'm curious, like how many people that you've interviewed for this podcast have watched Tiger King? 
this is actually yeah, this is a fresh question, question oh. just for you. Because I like I was coming in with all of my Tiger content, Tiger King content, like prepared. You were gonna start, hey, all you cool cats and kids. Yeah, I was, and then I was just like, no, that's too obscure. For oh, oh, I don't. I think that's mainstream now. <laughs> No, I definitely binge watched that like the first day it came out. <laughs> um, let's see, what have I done? March of 2020 seems like it happened 10 years ago. Yeah, correct. So, in thinking back, so this year I think I've spent a lot of time focused focusing on what's important to me. Like I think that's kind of what's happened to everybody that I've talked to about it is um it's more about like it, it's really focused everybody in on the things that they want to spend time on because it's forced all of us to always only spend one-on-one time doing certain things. And so for me, it really focused me down on, so I finished my novel. I've been writing a novel for like the last, I don't know. I was hoping that that would be part of the answer. (laughs) Um, I did finish it. Um, I'm going to be shopping it around. I started extremely exciting. Yeah. It's, um, and you finished a project. Yeah, I finished a project, you guys. I feel like that is like if <laughs> there's so any impressive. if there's any like win from 2020, like is that I finished something. Yeah, that's amazing. There's so many like half done crafts at my house. <laughs> like I think I found a cross stitch that I started um like seventh grade. <laughs> um, at my, it's still at my parents' that's... house because my mom doesn't throw anything away. And there's like this cross stitch. And I was like, Mom, and she's like, You started it. I want you oh to finish goodness. it. And I was like, oh. I currently have a bag full of of half finished projects, like right now at this moment. So I can fully relate to that. Yeah. When when actually when quarantine started, my mom called me and she's like, "Hey, you should come finish this crust." It's <laughs> just like, <sighs> okay. <laughs> Top priority. <laughs> Finish the seventh grade cross stitch. Like, you, you said that you were looking for stuff to do, and I was like, "Oh man, you're right." Like, of course, my mom is always right. Like, she always finds the right moment to be like, "So this cross stitch that I've been hoarding since like 1998. You should come finish it." So, oh so aside from seventh grade cross stitch projects, what did you find that was important that you focused on? Um, I think one of the things that I forgot about was um, eating well and doing exercise. Um, I, for, for whatever reason, like, you know, being being lawyers, I think all of us kind of are just like, well, that's like the one piece that we're um, not going to worry about. Like, if I don't get to the gym today, like, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think um, having to be at home and having no excuse because I can literally just pull up like a YouTube video and work out in my living room like it's there's no commute time. Um, I feel so much better on days that like I've been exercising and so I've been kind of focusing on like how much I probably should have been doing that earlier on in my life Um, and eating better, right? Like I think eating well – was something that I yeah, everyone always says this, right? Like it's always like those boring adult conversations <laughs> that you end up listening to is like <laughs> a twenty two year old and you're like, oh my God, yes, I'm still gonna eat these ice cream and nachos. Uh-huh. Um ice cream with nachos. Yeah. Yeah. That okay. Was, uh, that's like a legitimate adult dinner. Like don't let anybody <laughs> tell you otherwise. Like I'm not gonna tell you otherwise. I had nachos for lunch yesterday. So As you yeah. should. <laughs> yes. 
as I talk about eating better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yesterday didn't count. It was yesterday. But wellness. <laughs> yeah, but it was basically, like, I think, like, for me, the big revelation has been that all of this works together. It's like you can't think about it in terms of, like, okay, I'm going to be super militant about mm-hmm. only eating. Like, I think there was a while where I did, like, the whole 30, and Ooh, it was so hard. That's brutal. It's so brutal. And it's like... Well, you don't need to punish yourself in order to be healthy, right? But you also don't – you don't have to go to the other extreme, which is what I would end up doing. Is like I would get off hold 30 and then I would end up swinging yeah. to only eating really garbage food, yeah. right? And so I think there's like this happy medium and I think that's been like my biggest COVID lesson is like there needs to be a happy medium in terms of what we're doing here. It can't be, you know – work-life balance can't be at odds with um, working 90 hours a week, right? Like, those aren't opposite ends of the spectrum. I think they kind of work together, and we have to figure out a way to structure our lives around that. And that, I think, has been, like, the biggest eye-opener is, um, you know, it doesn't doesn't have to be these – I think we always think of these things as, like, adversarial or at odds, and they really aren't. Those are really false dichotomies I think we've set up. Yeah. Well, as we're winding down on time. (laughs) Sorry, I talk a lot. No, you're good. It's great. And uh, everyone just know that diet is a lifestyle. It's not (laughs) it's not 30 days. (laughs) Um, But as we're winding down, we want to know what's next for you. So I think um, I think that's a great question. I, I think in January of 2021, I am officially going to be Kapoor Law in Yay. policy, so I'm going solo. So exciting. Um, so I, that's kind of what's next for me right now. Um, I've always imagined myself on the bench, but I realized that I don't imagine myself on the bench as like a young person, which I thought that I did. It, it There's always some gray hair. So I'm waiting until I... <laughs> Grow some gray hair, and then I'll think about applying for the okay. bank. Okay. I like that, <laughs> that like, true vision of who you are. Yeah. You have to have gray hair. Well, I need some wisdom, you know? I feel like you don't get wisdom until you've actually sprouted your own gray hairs. I have one right oh, now. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I have some gray hairs. Does that mean I'm wise now? Yeah, totally. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't even realize that. That's Totes. amazing. I'm so, I'm so excited <laughs> to know that. <laughs> I'm going to go home and tell everyone that I'm wise. Oh, well, that's awesome, though, that you're going to open your own firm. Do you have any idea what you're going to be practicing? Yeah, I think um, so. I'm going to be doing appellate work, obviously, um, because it's my first love. But um, a little bit of it, I think, is going to be focused on um, doing DEI investigations for companies. So I've gotten involved with like this group of really wonderful. They're like. PhD, a lot of them are working on their dissertations and are therapists and things. Um, and they are starting, they're calling it the Emic Cultural Collective. And they're, they really wanted, like, they were inspired by, you know, like, all of the civil unrest and everything that's happened this year. Um, and so we started talking about it. And they are looking into kind of going into companies and helping them kind of work through the trauma that can happen in companies um, with race. And I thought it was like such an interesting viewpoint and perspective on what racial education should look like in corporations. And so um, I thought that I would start helping them do kind of like the investigation piece. So 
We're starting that in January as well. Awesome. Very cool. So many exciting things ahead. Yeah. And I have t- I'll have time to exercise. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say exciting personal goals, maybe starting new needlework projects. Or... Um, growing a muscle is like the next next on deck, you guys. I'm going to grow a muscle. I'm determined. <laughs> grow a muscle. That is a, that is a perfect New Year's resolution, and I love it so much. Even and... It's like an eyelid <laughs> muscle. We have muscles there. It's Just fine. the one muscle. Yeah. Just one. Do you have any idea which one it's going to be? No. I'm waiting. This is, I feel like an adolescent boy that's like, maybe I'll get an ab tomorrow. <laughs> oh, so it's like a luck and chance thing. Like, we're just going to see what pops just out. Pop up. Like, whatever pops out. Oh my gosh. I wish you the best of luck with that. <laughs> with growing a muscle and Thank with you. your practice. Thanks. Um, and thank you so much for, for being here. It's been really exciting to talk to you. Yeah, this has been really fun. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time, and we are very excited to see what 2021 has in store for you. This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McGarvey. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producer and editor is Courtney Holt with theme and introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices. Our Voices.